Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. All the way to the end of Malachi gives us a picture of the Messiah who is to come. And those, that, that picture is completed. It is fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth, who we know to be the Messiah, the Son of the living God, who came to live a perfect sinless life, die on the cross for your sins, according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He rose again on the third day, just like it was prophesied. So that's the whole point of this series Glory and redemption is for us to go through the Old Testament and to see it as more than just a bunch of disjointed stories that tell us someone else's history. But instead, all of these stories build together to reveal to us Jesus. And he is the center of our story. And so all of these, these historical truths, all of these facts we read in the Old Testament that reveal the glory of God also reveal to us his plan for redemption for all of us. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up. We're going to be in the book of Exodus. Uh, your table of contents is not necessary at this point. The book of Exodus is just the second book of the Bible. So it should be Genesis, turn it a number of pages, you get to Exodus. And Exodus is going to be uh, just the beginning point. We're going to cover a lot of stuff today. And the reason for that is because we're looking once again at the life of one person in a big picture way. And then over the next few weeks, we'll look at some of the major events in this person's life and their life with God and with God's people. Now, if you remember, as we came to the end of Genesis, last week we did talk about Judah, kind of a, a little bit of a rewind and recapitulation of some time. But at the end of Genesis, we're left with all of Jacob and his children in Egypt. They had left the promised land of Canaan. They have gone south down into Egypt to survive a, a, an area-wide famine that is encompassing all of the known cultures of the day. And Joseph, who was the star of that story, he reveals to his brothers that he understands something, that God had planned good things even as his brothers were planning evil against him. And the good things that God brought was the survival of many people. So all of the children of Jacob, who is also Israel, they are preserved by what had happened in Joseph's life. And, and many, many other lives were kept as well. And so Joseph and his brothers, they, or Joseph's family all comes down to Egypt. And Joseph says this to his brothers. He says to them, I'm about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land to the land he swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you remember all that we've gone through, we, that, that God has chosen this one family, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, his son and grandson, to give the land of Israel, but also to be his representatives on the earth and to be the family from which will come the savior of all mankind in time. So 
Joseph believes that the day is going to come that all of the children of Israel, all of his brothers and their children and their grandchildren and great-grandchildren as the generations go, eventually they will be taken back to the land that God had promised. And he wanted them to take his bones with them. Joseph made the sons of Israel take an oath. When God comes to your aid, you are to carry my bones up from here. Joseph wanted to be buried in the land of his father and grandfather and great-grandfather. He wanted to be buried in the promised land. And he believed so much in God's promises that he told his, his family members, when the day comes, and I know it's coming, take my bones back to the promised land. So we get to Exodus chapter 1. And Exodus chapter 1 begins with a, a, a quick genealogy of Israel and his sons. And it, it shows to us the, the big picture of the family members who went down into Egypt. And then it, it gives us an update on what happens after their arrival in Egypt. Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died. But the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. A new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. And so the children of Israel, they are greatly blessed. They are living in a, an area of Egypt called Goshen. It is kind of, uh, if you were to look at a map, it's the northeast corner of Israel, uh, excuse me, of Egypt. It connects to Israel. And, and they were living up in that area. It was lush, it was fertile, and they were numerous. They filled that land, that section of Egypt. And time passes, and a king, a ruler, a pharaoh, comes to power who doesn't remember anything about Joseph and who begins to look differently at all of these Israelites who are populating a very useful section of his land. This Pharaoh, this new king, he says to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further, and when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramesses as supply cities for Pharaoh. So the Israelites are now moving from this group of people who are prosperous and multiplying. Now, all of a sudden, with this new king, they are put into forced labor and they are made to work to build the Egyptian empire, building these supply cities, Pithom and Ramses, and they are, they are forced into labor with oppressive taskmasters over them. And you might say, well, how could God allow such a thing to happen to his chosen people? Why is it that, that he takes them down there to bless them and they end up in slavery? What's interesting is we can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 15. And God had already spoken to Abram before he had named, changed his name to Abraham and said this to him. Know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. So God had already revealed to Abram that this would happen and God's 
prophecy was being fulfilled. 400 years have passed roughly, and these, the, uh, the Israelites have gone from trusted partners who began to multiply and increase in power now to slaves who are being used and oppressed by the Egyptian leadership. So Exodus goes on to tell us more about this history. The more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and in all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. So you can see very quickly as we read, there's words, they were ruthless. They, they made their lives bitter. That this was not a great circumstance for the children of Israel, for the people who had, were the descendants of these original 70 who went down into Egypt. Now, hundreds of years have passed and their lives have become bitter and oppressed by ruthless taskmasters and rulers. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, the first whose name was Shiphrah and the second whose name was Puah, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. Now, this was not an uncommon practice because daughters could be married into a different culture. But sons, they'd pass on the names and the the lineage of their father and would preserve their culture. And so Pharaoh's goal here is not just to kill boys for the fun of it, but to take the, the whole culture of the people of Israel and have it absorbed into both the Egyptian culture and that of the other slaves that the Egyptians held. And so the goal was to kill the sons, to marry the daughters into other families and not wipe the Israelites Israelites out utterly, but to to blend them in with the culture over time. And not not only did Pharaoh uh, tell the midwives to do it, he also ended up commanding all of his people. uh, You must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. And so there was this plan for mass death For all of the boys of the Israelite people. So we see history tells us Exodus catches us up and says that the Israelites, the children of Israel, the children of Jacob, they've become a huge population. Some estimates put them in the millions by the time we get to the book of Exodus and its story unfolding. And this large population is now no longer welcome guests, but they are enslaved by the Egyptian throne. And they're not just enslaved, but this is a bitter enslavement. This is a life that is difficult to live and and maybe even from some perspectives, not even necessarily worth living. And, And the people of Israel are living through this time of the slaughter of their sons with the goal of destroying them as a people. And so God, he's chosen the Israelites. He's called them out. He says, you're going to be my people. I have a promised land for you. I'm going to care for you. And yet after a few hundred years, all of a sudden, there are so many of them. And yet they're enslaved in bitter life. And their children, their their precious boys are being slaughtered by those who have enslaved them. And so it's into this context that Moses is born. 
And, and, you know, we could just do a quick hand raise. Uh, we don't need to. But how many of you guys have seen Prince of Egypt, right? Ten Commandments. So most of us are familiar with the story of Moses. And so I didn't feel like we needed to go deep into things. But I wanted to highlight some of the things that make Moses unique. And also help us to see in Moses a dimly formed picture of the Savior who is to come. And so as we look at Moses in Exodus chapter 2, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2, we see this. It says, Now a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. Uh, that word beautiful can also be healthy. She gets excited by this son that's born and she hides him away, knowing that he is supposed to be cast into the Nile River, killed. But she hides him away because he's beautiful, he's healthy. This is a, an amazing young child that's born. And, and this mother, she can't help but hide him away. And then the story continues. And it, it tells us in, in verse 3, it, it got to the point where she could no longer hide him. And you young parents in church... Uh, or those of us who've had kids in church, we know, you know, the first few months, they just sit there, they sleep. Uh, that happens to the last about 20 years of life. You just sit there and sleep. But, but um, they, they just sit and sleep and they're so peaceful and you don't have any concerns in the service. And then they start talking and then they start singing and they start playing and they start complaining. And, and then it's like, ah, quiet. And, and you just can no longer hide them. And you'd like to set them adrift on a river, but that's not what you can do. That's why we have a nursery. If you need it, we've got help. You know. but, but what we do have here is a clear picture of you understand why it became difficult to hide him. After a few months. And so Moses' mother, she makes a basket, coats it in pitch, kind of a little ark, and she sets him adrift on the Nile River. It's interesting. The command was that all Hebrew boys should be cast into the Nile. Where does Moses end up? He ends up cast into the Nile, but not for death, but to, to save his life. He's brought, he's set adrift, and, and we know the story, right? Pharaoh's daughter finds him. She's like, oh, he's so cute. And uh, it, Moses' sister had followed him along and, and came up to Pharaoh's daughter and said, hey, I know somebody who can take care of the baby for you. And so it unfolds in the ensuing verses that not only is he saved, but also he's raised by his mother because Pharaoh's daughter falls in love with this little baby, but can't raise him in the palace. And so she sends him away to be raised by a Hebrew woman who's in the right condition to raise him up as an infant. And, and he gets to spend the formative years of his life, the young years of his life, raised up in, the Jewish, in a Jewish household, in a Hebrew household. So he knows who he is. He knows his background. He understands. And then he is sent, when he's old enough, back to Pharaoh's daughter, who then gives him the name Moses. And why did she name him Moses? Well, in, in Egyptian, it means drawing out. She drew him out of the Nile. So a lot of times you, you get names that are in line with some circumstance or some hope when you're looking at Old Testament names. And this is the case for Moses. In Hebrew, his name sounds like the word born. So wouldn't that be, you know, 
you're, you're born and all of a sudden your parents name you Tuesday. Why? Because you came on a Tuesday, right? That's just kind of how the naming kind of works sometimes in the Bible. So this young child kept safe by his family for as long as they could, set adrift on the Nile, rescued by the, the daughter of Pharaoh, who then sends him back to his family so they can raise him. When he's old enough, he's brought back into her household, and she says, your name is Moses. And so he continues to grow up in the household of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and experiences life there. So, Years later, verse 11 tells us, years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his people. Looking around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one uh, in the wrong, why are you attacking your neighbor? Who made you a commander and judge over us? The man replied, are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses became afraid and thought, what I did is certainly known. So after he grows up in Pharaoh's household as the child, the adopted child of Pharaoh's daughter, he goes out and has a concern for his own people, but he misapplies it. Instead of seeing what he can actually do in his position of authority and his position of prestige and, and privilege. Instead, he just goes out and kills the guy who did wrong. And it becomes quickly known. And so Moses ends up fleeing for his own life into the wilderness because Pharaoh, the king, pronounces that he is to be judged for killing an Egyptian. Moses goes out, lives in an area called Midian, he meets a woman. Guess where he meets her? At a well. It's like, this is the story of the Old Testament. You meet your wife at a well. Guys, you're single, you're looking, go find a well. I mean, I don't, I don't know if it'll work, but it's worth a shot, right? Ladies, you're looking for the right guy. Go to a well, hang out until he wants to water your sheep. I guess I don't get a sheep. You know, there's just so many layers to this. But a well, clearly it is critical. Maybe we should just dig a well out front. That'll be our singles ministry. Anyway, the, uh, please send all complaints to Shelly at faithlakeside.com. <laughs> he spends years in the wilderness. He has a wife. He has a child. He lives as a shepherd. And we think that when he started this journey, he was about 40 years old. So that brings us to the end of chapter 2. And remember, the goal is not to get into the details, but to remind you of who Moses is. And as Moses spends time in the wilderness, this happens in Egypt. Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Verse 25 says this, God saw the Israelites, and God knew. And this one verse, just in the way it expresses so powerfully that when God's people suffer, he sees, he knows. And that word know is not about understanding. It is about 
feeling, experiencing alongside. It is about genuinely sharing in the suffering. And so even when this was happening to God's people, it was not that he was oblivious. It was that he understood, he knew he was suffering with them. And yet it was not yet time for them to be rescued. And so time continues to pass. And then by the time we get to chapter 3 in Exodus, we see Moses called into service by God. So what transpires here is Moses, he is out shepherding, taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. He sees a burning bush. Most of us are familiar with that picture. The burning bush, he goes to it because you just don't see a bush on fire that's not getting consumed in the desert. That just doesn't happen. Nobody, he, he didn't understand. He goes to check it out. He hears God speak to him from the burning bush. The God of his fathers, the God of his forebears begins to speak to him from the bush and invites him to take up the mantle of freeing his people. Exodus chapter 3 verses 9 and 10. Because the Israelites cry for help has come to me, says God, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, therefore go. I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people the Israelites, out of Egypt. Finally, after 400 years, God chooses a man who will go and lead the people of God out of captivity and back to the promised land. And so we see the God of all creation, the God who says to, to Abraham, I am, excuse me, to uh, Moses, I am who I am. This God has chosen Moses, sends him back to Egypt, which has got to be kind of a scary proposition. And then Moses is to confront the king of Egypt and say to him, as the exodus begins, let my people go. He's saying on God's behalf, let my people go. And we've all seen the movies, right? We all, we've seen Charlton Heston, let my people go. He says it so wonderfully. And, and God uses Moses to lead his people out of captivity and into freedom. And at this point, chapter 7, verse 7, which is during the Exodus events, which we'll talk about more next week, Moses is 80 years old. So <laughs> if you've ever wondered how long will it take for God to bring you into his perfect plans to the things that, that, that you would like to do and he'd like you to do. Like, like God, I'm ready to do big things. Sometimes you got to be 80 before it happens. So uh, eat healthy, exercise, and know that your day's coming. Just wait. Sometimes it takes 80 years. Uh, Moses lived to be uh, about 120. And so he had 40 years in Egypt 40 years in the desert in preparation for his ministry. And then at 80 years old, God uses him for 40 years to lead his people to freedom. So we get to Exodus chapter 6. It tells us that Moses had a unique relationship with God. Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, it says this. God spoke to Moses, telling him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but I was not known to them by my name, the Lord. So 
God Almighty, uh, it, it is uh, a specific word, L, and I can't remember what it is, so forgive me, it's, but it's L. God had introduced himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as L. And, but now he is actually sharing with Moses his personal name, Yahweh. I am that I am. And so Moses is the first one in all of, of, of the scriptures to hear God share his own personal name. Now, why does that matter? Well, it's, it's like this. To, to the difference between like knowing a, a police officer and calling them officer. Yes, officer. Yes, officer. Yes, officer. That's some sort of formal relationship, right? But when you know their name is Bob. Hey, Bob. Good to see you. Thanks for not writing me that ticket. I mean, thanks for the warning. You know, I mean, right? You, you get the picture on that kind of thing. When you have someone in authority, when you know their, their title, L, God, that's nice. But when you know their name, you're in relationship with them that's unique. It's intimate. It's personal. And Moses is the first one to know the personal name of God. Exodus chapter 20, a little bit later, verses 18 through 21, we see something else special about Moses. After having listened to God, representing God before Pharaoh, leading God's people in the Exodus, leading them from slavery into liberation, he takes them to the base of of a big mountain, the same mountain that he had seen, the burning bush, and God appears at the top of the mountain, freaks everybody out. And they get so scared of God that they want Moses to be the one who speaks on God's behalf. Moses, don't let God talk to us. Instead, he'll talk to you and you talk to us. He'll reveal himself to you and then you reveal him to us. And so Moses had this unique opportunity, this unique role of representing God before the people and revealing to the people God's nature, God's character, God's standards. God spoke directly to Moses and then Moses spoke to the people as the representative of God. Now, some of you might be sitting there and you're, you're hearing some of these things. You're, you're hearing some of these descriptions of Moses. And you remember earlier I told you that, that Moses is, is kind of a, a dimly painted representation of the Christ who is to come, the Messiah who is promised. And so we see in, in these roles that Moses has, these commands that he's given to free the people of God. To represent God before the people. He's got a unique relationship with God. As God's prophet and representative. We see that that there's this dimly forming picture. Kind of fuzzy. Like you know you need glasses and it's off in the distance. And and, and eventually you know it'll come into focus. But not yet. In fact not for a, a couple thousand years. Does it truly come into focus. Here's what happens in Exodus chapter 20. All the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the ram's horn and the mountains surrounded by smoke. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. You speak to us, Moses, and we will listen, they said to him. But don't let God speak to us or we will die. So Moses is God's representative to his people. Here's something else so cool about Moses. Exodus chapter 34. If you were to flip over there and look at these verses. Exodus chapter 34 tells us that Moses' very face, it literally literally glowed with the glory of God. 
Exodus 34 tells us that every time Moses went to see God, went to communicate with God, spend time in the presence of God, he'd start to just glow with glory. And then he'd come down to the people and they were actually afraid of him because they saw his face glowing. It's like, whoa, what's up? What's wrong with you, Moses? And it it boiled down to he had been in God's presence for so long, so intimate with God, that the very glory of God had seeped into him and was shining out through his face. And so every time Moses went in and spoke with God from here on out, he would come out and everyone would know that he'd been with God because his face was glowing. He would share what God had to say and then he would cover his face with a veil so he didn't freak everybody out any longer. And we see God's glory being revealed in in a man and people watching his face and seeing the very glory of God. And how cool is that? And it's this this blurry, dimly lit picture in the distance of a Savior who is to come. Later on in in, uh, Deuteronomy, which is a a few books back, it's the end of the five books that we credit to Moses as having written. And then the end of Deuteronomy, chapter 34, verses 5 and 6 It tells us this. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the Lord's word. He, God, buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, facing Beth Peor. And no one to this day knows where his grave is. Scripture tells us that Moses was so intimate with God that God himself buried Moses. That's so cool. I mean, at best. You know, a a pallbearer at my funeral, somebody carrying me off to the grave in my funeral, maybe my kids or grandkids, a cousin, uh, you know, right? But oh my gosh, God himself bore Moses' body to his burial spot and buried him. What an honor. It speaks so highly of who Moses was and is still today. A great prophet honored by God. Hebrews In the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 29 says that by faith in telling the story of Moses, by faith, Moses' parents hid him to keep him safe. That, That they believed in God's promise for their family so richly that they hid their son in hopes of what God would do with him. By faith, Moses himself refused to be the son of Pharaoh's daughter. By faith, Moses chose to suffer as an Israelite. (laughs) Not something many of us would, would do. By faith, Moses left Egypt and went out to the wilderness. By faith, Moses instituted the Passover, which we'll talk about more next week when we talk about the Exodus. And by faith, Moses crossed the Red Sea. Man, It is so natural and so normal when we read through the Old Testament and we encounter someone like Moses that we begin to think, I'd like to be like Moses. Let me begin to model my life after Moses. If only everyone were like Moses. In fact, God himself said this about Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. This is Moses speaking on God's behalf. You must listen to him. Moses says, there's going to be a prophet like me that will come and you need to listen. Now, what's true is that many prophets of God did come throughout the history, but none of them 
were ever comparable to Moses again. In fact, a little bit later in, in Deuteronomy, it tells us that, that um, no other prophet had risen like Moses. But what's interesting about Moses is if we go back and we look at some of the negatives in his life, in, in Exodus chapter 3, verses, verse 11 through 417, it tells us that he struggled with his own self-image and with confidence. God says, Moses, I'm choosing you to free my people. And Moses says things like, well, yeah, 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 but I don't speak so good, God. I, I, don't, I don't make good words. <laughs> and God says, uh, okay, well, I'll, I'll give you a brother or your brother to help you. Well, yeah, but who will I say sent me? <sighs> Moses, I sent you. I am that I am. Go in confidence. Yeah, but how will they believe me if I don't do something special and spiffy? God over and over again is trying to tell Moses, go and do. And Moses makes excuses. I'm not good enough. I don't know how you could use me. Why would anybody believe me? I mean, look at me. I can't do anything special. Moses struggled with self-image and, and he, he struggled with confidence in both himself and confidence in God at points in his ministry. And so we see that while Moses is this, this great man, this great prophet who is lifted up, he's also flawed. He also has shortcomings. In fact, later on in his ministry, in Numbers chapter 20, verses 10 through 13, he blatantly disobeys God in an, in an angry moment. Now, you might wonder, what was it? Well, it was very serious. He hit the rock instead of spoke to it. And you, what? Yeah, so here's how it works. Earlier in the Israelites' wanderings in the wilderness... God had told Moses to hit a rock and water would come out of it. And so what happens is Moses hits a rock and water comes out of it and provides water for all of the children of Israel who were thirsty. Here in Numbers chapter 20, they're in a, a time of thirst and struggle again. And God says to Moses, go and speak to the rock. In other words, I don't want you to hit it this time. I want you to speak. I want you to trust me in such a way that no longer do you have to have some sort of physical thing happen, but you just believe. And Moses gets so angry with the Israelites who are complaining about being thirsty that he walks up to the rock and goes, bam, instead of speaking to it. He disobeyed God. And what's interesting, that one act of disobedience keeps him from being allowed into God's promised land. So we go, well, that's not such a big deal. Yeah, but he failed. He came short. He sinned. He was not perfect. And so of all the great things we have to say about Moses, this amazing story, this prophet of God, unlike any other, in the end, he falls prey to his own sin and is unable to see the fullness of what God had desired for him. It's like this, this thing in people. Every time we think they're good, we think they're great, we lift them up, we exalt them, we say we want to be just like them. Ultimately, we find out they fall short like we do. They sin. They struggle. And yet, even in all of, of, of Moses' sins and struggles, we see him 
lifted up by God, God says good things about him. Deuteronomy 34.10 says, No prophet has arisen again in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. So for even his shortcomings, God still says, there's never been a prophet like Moses. Until, until we get to someone else. You see, a little bit of of, uh, doctrine for you, a little bit of theology 101 for you. Moses is what we call a type or a foreshadowing of Jesus. So there is a a type of prophecy or a a group of prophecy called typology. And we'll talk about some of it, but I don't want to get too eggheady. But I want you to understand that in Scripture, in the Old Testament, we see patterns that God in in the way he works, in the kinds of people that he uses. And these patterns repeat. We see Moses as a prophet, and then we see other Old Testament prophets who are great men and women, and yet they fail ultimately. Because in the Old Testament, what we see is even the best of what humanity has to offer is never good enough. Even the, the, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament falls short. Even the greatest king of the Old Testament falls short. Even the the, the greatest priest of the Old Testament falls short in sins. But they are all a type of foreshadowing of the prophet, the priest, the king who is to come. And that is Jesus the Christ. But some things I want you to just kind of take away as we, we finish talking about the overview of Moses today is that every person who is simply human will fail you. Moses did great things. God used him in amazing ways. And yet ultimately, Moses fell short. Moses sinned. Moses did not get to see, did not get to go into. He did get to see. He did not get to go into God's promised land. And Moses, as amazing as he was, as powerful a leader, he was a prophet who saw God face to face. But he was simply human. And he fell short. And he failed. And that's true. Every person in your life who is simply human will fail you. And I want you to look around the room and just imagine with me, who does not fall into that category? (laughs) All of us are simply human. All of us. All of the people we think are great and godly people, they are simply human and they stand the chance to ultimately fail you in some way or some fashion. And what's interesting about failure is it reminds us of our deep needs. We need someone to lead us. We need someone to be sure of. We need someone who will provide for us and care for us. And Moses did that for the people of Israel. And he did that in amazing ways. And yet he still fell short. And today we are still looking for people to meet our needs, to rescue us, aren't we? We, we, we vote for people hoping they'll change the world. We, we marry people hoping they'll change us or we can change them and things will be better. We have kids and think that'll make us happy. We change jobs and think that will fulfill us. We eat more than we should. We drink more than is proper. We watch television. We think all the time 
that we can be healed, our needs can be met, we can be fulfilled by things that will always fail us. Moses, as amazing as he was, could not fulfill the deepest needs of the children of Israel. A constant and sure leader who would never fall short. One who would love them through everything and provide for them in every way. Moses falls short. Now, why does Moses fall short? Because God tells us exactly how this boils down. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, paints a picture of God who has established a household. And Moses is but a servant in the household. And the servants, they do their very best, but they don't have the authority to do it all. And they will fail. But the son, the son of the builder, he comes in and he meets all of our needs. And he establishes the household through his own life and provides all that we need because he is not just a servant. He is not simply man. He is man and God together building up the household of God. And so all of us can come into a place of provision and into a place where our needs are met and into a place where we're not looking any longer for a prophet to save us, but we have a Savior who has already saved us. That's the promise of Jesus Christ. That's the the picture that the life of Moses paints is that even great leaders fall. But there is a leader who is to come and who has come in our history who will never fail. Who will provide all that you need. Who will know God intimately. Who will speak on God's behalf. Who will cry out to God for you. Who will intercede for your needs. Who will provide for you. Who will bring you into the household and make you a child of God. This is what Jesus has done for us. And and Jesus, he tells us, he says to us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, where everyone else in your life has fallen short, even great prophets like Moses, I am the one who can meet every need. I am the one who can give your life direction. I am the one who can give your life purpose and meaning. I am the one that can give you real and genuine life. I will free you from the slavery of sin and bring you into the promised land of eternity. Jesus says, he's the one where Moses fell short. Jesus fulfills. Where Moses was imperfect, Jesus is perfect. Where Moses failed, Jesus never fails. And the thing is, is in our lives today, some of us were looking for a Moses, whether it's a leader or a thing or a place or a job or a relationship, someone who will lead us into freedom, free me from my suffering today. And every one of those things will fail. Every one of them will fail. But God in Christ Jesus, will never fail you. And so the story of Moses brings us to a place where we we look at his overarching in life and we say, yeah, it'd be cool to be a man like that, full of faith and, and living by faith, but I don't need that man to rescue me. I need the God man. I need Jesus to make me whole. No matter how good the person, place, or thing, I want to tell you today that only Jesus can truly offer to you that which you most deeply need. It doesn't matter how good the person, how good the place, how great the thing. 
those things only serve to remind us ultimately of what we're missing out on, and that is a relationship with God through Christ Jesus. If you keep chasing after the stuff, if you keep chasing after people that you think are good enough, just like Moses, eventually, no matter how great they are, they will fail. But when you chase after Jesus Christ, when you pursue Him, when you seek your fullness of life in Him, He will never fail. Only He can give you what you most deeply need. What would you most deeply need? And, and just something to, to tell you about all the shortcomings of this life serve only to remind us of our need for Jesus. Oh, Shelly and I were having a discussion. It was our 27th wedding anniversary a little over a week ago. Um, we went and we, we stayed in a cheap hotel because that's how we roll. And um, <laughs> it's not how she likes to roll, but it's how I roll. Uh, there are always discussions about that's not nice enough and uh, that's not cheap enough. And, you know, we're trying to work that out. But we were having a discussion. And, you know, after being married for 27 years, you, you get to a point where you go, we had dreams when we got married. We had hopes. How come God hasn't brought any of them to pass in the way we expected? How come? And, and we came to a place where we realized all of those dreams, all of those hopes, all of those things we wish we had, they serve to remind us that nothing in this life satisfies. Because we've had some of them, and yet we weren't satisfied. We've been to some of those places, and they didn't complete us. We've had some of those experiences, and they weren't enough. Jesus is the only one who is enough. I'm excited that Moses failed. I'm excited that he fell short. I'm I'm happy he wasn't the Messiah because Jesus did it perfectly where Moses was imperfect. Jesus brought completion where Moses was incomplete. So when we read through the Old Testament, what we see is Moses reminds us we need a savior. His shortcomings remind us that nothing in this world is good enough. Only Jesus. Those things that you long for, those things you think will make you happy and fix you, they serve only to remind you that you are incomplete. And I'm here to tell you, the Bible tells us so clearly, you will only find completion in relationship with God through Christ Jesus. So it kind of brings us to the same point as last week. Come to a place where you can confess your need, confess your own shortcomings, confess your own failed desires and how they are only fulfilled in Christ. Not in a president, not in a politician, not in a relationship, not in a job, not in any vehicle. Doesn't matter how nice it is. None of it satisfies. None of it brings wholeness. Confess that you are incomplete and that you need a Savior. Repent of your old way of life and your old way of seeking to fill the holes with everything other than God. And come back to Him say, I'm tired of stuffing my heart full of garbage to try and be happy. I know now it will only fail me. Even good things, as great as Moses was, he fell short. As great as these things are, they will always fail me. And so I turn away from them and chase after you, Jesus. Believe on him as the only begotten son of God who died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead on the third day. Believe on him and then trust in him. Look at what he says and believe it to be true that he will make provision. He will bring you through. He will ultimately rescue your soul. 
and bring you into eternal life with him. And so, Moses, when we look at the big story, he reminds us that there is no man or woman who can save us, save for the God-man, Christ Jesus. And even someone as amazing, with such a great story as Moses had, is still going to come short. Only Jesus, only Jesus can fulfill those promises, can lead us to genuine freedom, and will never fail us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you for the fact that in the story of Moses, his big life story, you remind us that even the greatest of men is destined to fail. And that we cannot put our trust in man alone. Or in the works of man. Or the things that we've created. Or the places that we've discovered. None of those things can give us true hope. But Father we are so thankful. That you gave us Jesus. And we pray today that. We would be able to repent of our. Chasing after and lusting after those. Those things that never fill. And never complete us. And instead bring us. To a place where we genuinely chase after relationship with you through Jesus. We confess to you, Father, that we have fallen short. We seek to repent, to turn away from our foolish ways. We believe that your Son is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who died on the cross for our sins according to the Scriptures, was buried, and then rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And help us to trust you in all things. If that's your prayer this morning, if that's, that's where you're at, I just want to encourage you to, to take a moment and talk to God on your own terms, with your own words, and express to Him where you're at. He longs to hear from you. He longs to genuinely rescue you. But you must turn away from the imperfect things of man and chase after Jesus wholeheartedly first. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus, knowing that our prayers are heard, our hearts are filled, and our needs are met when we turn to Him. Amen. If you have questions, you want to talk more about what it means to be saved, how to be saved, what it means to know Jesus and to chase after Him, don't hesitate to come and talk to myself or any of the others in the room. Everybody here, we should be able to joyfully Share why we trust in Jesus with anybody who asks if we've made him the Lord of our life at any point in time. But don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to pursue Jesus. Don't be afraid to allow him to be the perfect savior that you need. Let's close with our song together and uh, then we'll be dismissed right after our song.